0: Hello again and welcome to Kendrew's Real Dirt, Gardening 2.0. I'm your host, Kendrews. I'm the author of 19 books on gardening, and soon there will be number 20. I don't usually talk about my next projects for many reasons, and the foremost reason is because it takes years to produce a book. And sometimes in the past, if somebody begs to know what my next book is about and I tell them Then a few months later I'll run into that person and he or she will say, I went to the bookstore and your book wasn't there. What happened? Well, books take about three years on average from start to finish and this one is no exception. But we are on schedule and it should be out in March 2015 and I promise I will be telling you all about it in the months to come. Today I'll be talking to a gentleman whose book is out and available, and I can say different. Michael Judd has a new work that presents modern concepts in the form of projects, and they might seem unusual at first. Have you ever thought about building an earthen oven in the backyard? or growing edible mushrooms in the shade, and I don't mean like a couple mushrooms on one log that you got uh, in the from a mail order catalog. We're talking really producing mushrooms in the shade in your yard. I think about shade gardening all the time and I think about the very few edibles you can grow in the shade, but uh, Michael's presents a whole lot of a whole lot more things that I'm going to be trying to grow in the shade and eat. And eating is part of his book, which is called Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, and when I have Michael on, I'm going to have him explain to us exactly what permaculture is. As far as my time in the garden this week, I actually did get out there. I planted about 200 bulbs. It's funny, when I order bulbs, I always try to think, now where am I going to put these? How am I going to shoehorn them into the garden? Uh, And then they arrive and it still ends up being a frenzy of getting them in. Just finding spots, well I thought about it in advance, but uh, there always seems to be something. And I, and then I want the bulbs to come up through plants that are existing and that makes it extra hard. When people talk about planting bulbs and they talk about a lot of bulbs or, or you know they want a show, well you can't do that with 25 bulbs you really need hundreds of bulbs and I mentioned that I planted 200 bulbs and that's that's a good start next on my list planting some trees when the leaves have fallen I've got uh, some trees deciduous trees that'll be dormant then and that's a really great time to plant trees but uh, if you think I didn't plan well to get the bulbs in wait till I try to get the trees in of course it would be best uh, to not acquire a tree before I know where it's going to go, but if somebody waves a rare fancy plant in front of my face, uh, forget about restraint. As my guest today knows, patience is a is a, a prerequisite for gardening. But gardening is so exciting—new projects, new plants, and discoveries. That's part of our passion too. Michael Judd says that edible landscaping re-enlivens the adventure of creating useful landscapes. His new book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, digs right in with simple designs that focus on utility and aim to reduce lawn. Growing up between Northern England and the Appalachian Mountains of Maryland, Michael Judd's roots have been branched with diverse landscapes and fertile culture. He studied at the New York Botanical Garden, has run a grassroots nonprofit in rural Latin America, headed up an arid lands research project in the desert of Southeast Spain, and today creates eclectic designs, as he says, that meld form, function, and productivity. And I'm happy to welcome Michael Judd to Kendrew's Real Dirt.
1: Hello, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You don't have a British accent. How did that happen?
1: Uh, I've got southern roots. Uh, our family's from North Carolina and Point south uh, as a young boy when I grew up in england I, I certainly did sound English, but um I think the the southerns a little bit stronger in me
0: i I hear that <laughs> <laughs> my my second question for you, my first question you 've answered my second question to you is well in a in a sort of a nutshell, what is permaculture? You know everybody says permaculture and tosses around that term. Probably because it's a little vague, and, or general, anyway.
1: Permaculture is a design practice that centers on creating ecologically diverse uh, habitats that also meet uh, our human needs of food, medicines, fibers, fodders, craft, building materials. Uh, simplified and translated, permaculture can be broken down into bite-sized projects that have multiple benefits on your landscape.
0: Well, in your new book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, that's exactly what you present, are individual, kind of specific projects, different ways to achieve different things, and all of them kind of uh, reducing lawn and uh, with a, an edible angle. Uh, and one thing that interests me that you write about uh, is keeping the water that falls on your property or comes to your property, either on your property or, you know, not letting it go into the sewer, not letting it go into the, if you have a municipal system or, you know, you want to save the water. Everyone wants to save water.
1: Yeah, we have a bit of a mantra in permaculture that when it comes to water on your landscape, we want to slow it, we want to spread it, and we want to sink it. You know, that's Mm. such a valuable resource um, to be reused, and as you say, can to keep it out of our, our overwhelmed watersheds uh, and the pollutions that are coming off our roofs and our driveways, uh, maybe coming from our neighbor's land, uh, we can really kind of take advantage of that and hold it on our landscape to really do the work for us. So every time it rains, we're passively harvesting that water, and that water is that key ingredient to building good soil to, you know, invigorating or you know, soil life and digesting organic matter. Um, and anyone who has a, a rain barrel uh, understands this concept. Uh, but a rain barrel, a 55-gallon rain barrel, will overflow in about three minutes of a good rain. And then where's the rest of that water going? That's where we begin to think about uh, shaping the landscape uh, to harvest and hold that water.
0: Well, it's a good idea to have a rain barrel, I mean, if you're not going to have anything else, or have five rain barrels. But if you've ever had a 55-gallon rain barrel, you know how quickly that water gets used. If when you go to use, water the garden, it's just—it's gone in minutes. Right. So, so,
1: so you, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say you have to do more. <laughs> yes. And uh, you have things in your book, and we can't go into incredible detail, but really shaping the landscape, and as you said, contouring the landscape, and developing swales and well, things that'll slow it down, and I, I think that's one of the most important takeaways in your book is, to me, is sequestering the the water whenever possible. But you do have some quirky, dare I say, <laughs> things that I I'm not that familiar with, and, and maybe at some point you can tell me what hugel culture is. But uh, I'm first, I'd like to know about your whole foray into growing fungus.
1: Oh, fungi, yes. And and fungi, like water, are one of these key elements uh, on the landscape that help everything else thrive. Uh, and really, fungi is the keystone species, meaning that uh, its existence allows uh, pretty much the rest of us to exist, especially humans. And in any healthy landscape, garden, uh, whether it's ornamental, shade, um, you know, productive, you know, when your fruits Or your vegetables. Fungi are what are really gluing it all together and creating resilience and also really adding a lot of fertility. So there's many ways to work with fungi in the landscape as well as very easily grow gourmet and medicinal mushrooms uh, outdoors, which is a lot of what we focus on uh, in the shade. Uh, A lot of clients come to us and they say, oh we have these big trees, we have lots of shade. Uh, we can't grow anything. And hmm. I get this this big cheesy grin on my face, and I'm like, <laughs> now you can grow mushrooms. We're talking shiitakes, oysters, wine cap mushrooms, um, lion's mane, reishi. And all of these are very abundant and actually very easy to grow, especially in our um, you know, northeast and mid-Atlantic uh, climates.
0: Well, uh, uh, can one find uh, a I don't know what you call it, inoculants or spores for these different edible mushrooms?
1: Yes, very easily. It's becoming very popular to grow mushrooms. Now, most mushroom growing uh, happens indoors uh, on sterilized sawdust blocks in warehouses, and the mushrooms tend to taste like that as well. And those conditions to grow mushrooms are controlled um, and a little complex, whereas what I like to focus on is growing mushrooms on wood logs and wood chips out in the landscape. And it takes, you know, practically, you know, no technical skill and certainly very minimal sort of controls.
0: And and I guess moisture, moisture, moisture. Uh, if you're going to grow mushrooms indoors or outdoors, and I think this idea of growing them outdoors is so intriguing, uh, you have to keep those wood chips wet
1: Yeah, moisture is the key ingredient uh, with fungi, uh, which why it pairs well with shade. And when we're talking about log growing mushrooms on logs like shiitakes and oysters uh, or growing mushrooms on wood chips like the wine cap mushroom, we're usually talking sort of a dappled shade. Uh, Whether you have a grouping of trees, uh, that's perfect to, you know, lay your wood chips and your logs under. Uh, Also, sometimes if it's more urban, uh, under a deck where water can fall through, uh, and if you've got all you have is a patio, you can also set set up a little shade net and, you know, grow your little log right there, so they're very versatile. Uh, You don't need a perfect landscape, uh, but you do need uh, consistent moisture and a little bit of shade.
0: I'm speaking with Michael Judd, the author of a new book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. And I imagine listeners are beginning to realize that there are some unusual approaches in this book. And uh, you mentioned you're, we've been talking about mushrooms, growing mushrooms, which sounds really like voodoo gardening to me, but something I'm going to try. But you also have a whole section on uncommon fruits, And I have a confession uh, to share with you. I have never tasted a pawpaw. Ooh,
1: yes, pawpaws are heavenly. If you've ever tried a custard apple from the tropics or a cherimoya, uh, you've come close uh, as they are a relative, a northern relative of those tropical fruits. And they look at the trees have these beautiful deep-lobed leaves, uh, and the fruit looks very much like a mango and inside has this creamy, rich texture uh, that has a, a, a score of flavors in it, uh, most of them relating to something tropical like pineapple and banana, uh, passion fruit, all mixed together, and uh, it's really quite an exquisite experience, and a, and a surprising one, uh, you know, up here in the north to have.
0: Well, I guess the reason that we haven't tasted them is they probably don't ship, or the season's too short. Uh, like most Fruits that I'd like to try that you never find in the market, and uh, and that's a great reason to grow grow them yourself.
1: Absolutely, yeah. They they, they don't have a shelf life. Uh, otherwise, I think we would all know them because they are so delicious. Uh, but next year, Ken, I'm gonna I'm gonna ship you a couple.
0: Ooh. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I can't, but we'll have to wait. Um, can you give me a couple of other unusual fruits that you've come across that you can that one can try in a hardy cold climate?
1: Yes, uh, another one of my favorites is the jujube, oh. uh, also known as the Chinese date, uh, is a very ornamental, very carefree uh, small tree, usually twelve to fifteen feet in height. Uh, Often with a very interesting contorted form to it, and has these delicious little fruits um, that are about the size of a really large date. And they come with this crisp apple like uh, texture that has undertones of caramel in it, and is just an abundant bearer and a very disease and insect resistant uh, edible landscape all star. Uh, that I, I recommend for its ease, its beauty, and its very tasty fruits. Now, it's, it's called Chinese date because in Asia, where it's very popular, they'll take the fruits and then steam them, and they will come very close to what we're familiar with as the palm date. Uh, but just very, very versatile uh, and attractive and easy tree. Yeah, so that's, that's up there on my all-star list.
0: Well, w- why do you think people don't grow them? Is it, again, a situation of the... Shelf life
1: No. I think it's just not really ever having the experience of eating them. Uh, very similar to the hardy kiwi, uh, which is a cousin to the fuzzy kiwi, which grows well all through the northeast and all up into Canada uh, and down here in the mid-Atlantic and even into the south. And this is a very delicious berry. It's a little smaller than the fuzzy kiwi, and it's smooth-skinned. Um, you pop the whole thing in your mouth, and it has all of those Beautiful flavors of the kiwi, without sort of that tart sourness, uh, and it's a very productive and very ornamental vine. Uh, but again, I think it's just a lack of kind of a, a seeing them, buying them, having the experience of tasting them. Because once you have, you're really hooked, and then when you see how beautiful and easy it is to grow, uh, you, you, you're sold. Uh, so I think it's just a, a just a, a lack of experience. Hmm
0: we've been talking about things to try to that one can eat uh and in your book you have projects and the projects range from a, a, an herb spiral which i'm going to try to have you explain a little bit and earthen ovens building your own outdoor earthen oven but uh can you tell me what hugel culture is
1: hugel culture is a germanic word basically meaning wood that's covered in soil and it is basically that simple. Uh, it's an observation that is, that is gained when you look at an old forest. You look at an old forest and, and you'll see that the, the ground is very lumpy. And that's where trees have fallen and over time, usually decades, leaves have fallen on it and began to decay that wood and turn it back into rich soil. So taking that observation, we can imitate that on our landscapes where often we have uh, a lot of woody debris, especially in our part of the the world here, Uh, whether that's from prunings, you know, deadfall trees, storm fallen trees. We can take that wood and we can go ahead and shape it into a bed, a raised bed. And then we can go ahead and cover that with soil and straw and let it sit. And after a few years and breaking down, really a lot of what it is is the ambient fungi move in and begin to break that wood down into really wonderful soil that then when you come along and plant into it, has all of its own nutrients and moisture needs. So it's basically piling wood, covering it with soil, being patient, and getting the rewards of one of the best raised growing beds ever.
0: Being patient.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> being patient is a key, key part there absolutely, That's, but it's less work
0: well and being patient is an important part of growing fruit on trees too
1: yes, absolutely
0: so you have to have things to do along the way, I think people when they hear things that are going to take years think I, I can't. I'm not going to do that, but it's not like you're just standing around watching that pile of wood, waiting for it to be ready, you're off doing tons of other things, including maybe making an herb spiral. And I don't know if you can explain an herb spiral on the radio, but I'd, I'd love to have you try.
1: Sure. And herb spirals are, are these wonderful, edible uh, landscape architecture pieces that can fit very easily into almost any setting, whether that's sort of uber-urban, uh, you know, front yard suburban, or even on you know the back homestead. And basically what you're doing is you are stacking up um, stackable rocks, stones, granite blocks, bricks, whatever you might have, into this spiral formation that rises about three feet high and creates along its spiral bed uh, different growing microclimates. So you can imagine at the top of this three-foot spiral uh, you've got a very windy, sunny spot, very good for Mediterranean herbs plant your rosemary, your sages, your thyme, and as you begin to wrap down you come around to the east where you have some afternoon sun protection, a little bit cooler, wonderful place for your chives and your parsley. As you come down again now you're facing south and another good spot for your basils and your your lavenders and then as you come down the last little low bit which is usually north-facing and a little bit cooler a great place for land cress and other cool wet loving herbs so in this little footprint you've created all these different microclimates and you've sort of expanded the growing space uh, for a small area and they are a treat uh, year round even in the wintertime you know when nothing is producing you have this beautiful structure uh, that makes you look forward to you know the spring and the, and the, the growing to come
0: So you have retaining walls, uh, which I guess you could make out of almost anything, and uh, maybe a pretty way to do it would be with with dry stacked stones.
1: Absolutely. Um, And even if you don't have dry stacked stones, in my book I talk about two different types of spirals. And they do not need to be just be for herbs. You can make these a beautiful, productive garden. Uh, if it's only shade you have, you can put your woodland plants in them. Uh, really, there's, there's not too many rules uh, in, in how you can use these in your landscape. And if you, all you have is sort of rounded stone, there are ways to go ahead and pile up earth and compost first, shape that, and then begin placing your stones around it. And again, in the book, I'd really ABC how to do this um, so that, you know, regardless of your situation, uh, there's a way you can you can create a, a wonderful raised uh, stone-lined, you know, spiral.
0: Well, and you mentioned that uh, growing vertically is that uh, you're getting a lot more space and a lot less space.
1: Yeah, I think with a spiral, you can get almost up to nine times the growing space for the footprint that you know that you're that you're sitting on.
0: You talked about the exposure and which parts face south and I know in your book you have all those things described. But it also makes me think of something that I've I learned over the years that if you make a pile of soil it's kind of like well, if you have a sponge in the kitchen and you have a completely saturated sponge and you put it on its end, the bottom of the sponge is very wet and the top of the sponge is quite dry. So as you said, you have your dry, drier Mediterranean plants at the top and the moisture-loving plants at the bottom. So it, you're creating a lot of different growing situations.
1: Yes, and to boot, you're creating sort of beneficial habitat with that structure. All of those stones and nooks and crannies uh, create great habitat for our beneficial insects, salamanders, lizards, things that help balance the ecology for the rest of our landscape year round it sits there and is available and i think that plays also a key role in having a really healthy landscape
0: uh and uh, and the occasional snake <laughs>
1: yes which i which i very much welcome i know it makes some people queasy but while wow, they do so much in the garden i
0: know Well, uh, as anyone listening can tell, there's a lot of interesting and unusual and new ideas in edible landscaping with a permaculture twist, uh, including the herb spirals we talked about, food forests, which we didn't talk about, lots on raised bed gardens, earthen ovens, which is really too much to talk about. Uh, In a short period of time, the uncommon fruits that we talked about and something that's going to be new to a lot of people, outdoor mushroom cultivation and a whole lot more. I've been speaking with Michael Judd. And again, he's the author of the new book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. And Michael, thank you for being so patient with the dog barking in the
1: background. Thank you, Ken. It's it's fun to play in the dirt with you.
0: (laughs) Bye for now. Well, I mentioned in the beginning of the show that I have some trees to plant. Um, I I might get around to growing some mushrooms, too. I'll plan for that next spring when those bulbs I planted are blooming. But I've got five liquid dam bars, slender silhouettes, to get in. And they've been in pots for two years. And I have stakes in the ground uh, so I know where they're going to go. But I think I've got about four small maple trees and uh, I've got a couple of dogwoods that have to go somewhere. Sometimes when a big old tree or some old plant is either killed or dies from old age or floods or some other calamity, uh, people often say, well, that's an opportunity. And I always think I have to recover from the sadness of the event before I can see it as an opportunity. But now that I've got these trees to plant, I'm not so sad that that old sickly hemlock finally passed on and I had to take it down. And the the blue spruce that had been in trouble for, well, at least 20 years, and I should have had that taken down and that finally died and it came down too. So I do have a few new spots for some trees and small trees because... Uh, I don't have that much room. And that's one good thing about those slender silhouettes. They're columnar trees. So I can get all of those five trees in, in a pretty tight cluster, uh, make kind of a cathedral of spires with Liquid slender silhouette. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Dirt, Gardening 2.0. See you then.